Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Every year we read aloud this story, the story of what is called Christ's passion. Passion, a word that originally referred solely to the sufferings of Jesus, but over time also was invoked to describe any strong emotion. And that works too, because along with great suffering, there is definitely a lot of strong emotion in this story. Tension builds as Jesus and the disciples are interrupted in the Garden of Gethsemane. A familiar face, one of their own, Judas, approaches with a treacherous kiss. A crowd follows Judas, a lynch mob, armed for battle and determined to arrest Jesus. In the shadow of this betrayal, as the disciples realize what is about to go down, they ask out loud if this is now the time if this is the moment for a call to arms. But somebody among them flinches and doesn't wait for an answer. Emotions are running high and everyone has their breaking point. Luke doesn't tell us who it was, but from the other gospel accounts, we know it was Peter. Peter, who true to form strikes first and asks questions later drawing his sword, apparently prepared to take on the opposition by himself, Peter's first salvo injures an innocent bystander, a servant who had no choice but to come along for the ride. Jesus, however, rebukes any notion of putting up a fight as he counters any and all inclinations towards violence with a touch of healing and a convicting question. Instead, Jesus surrenders himself to this hour of darkness and is led away for trial. Peter, taking his usual, his initial misstep with his sword in stride, tracks Jesus' movement from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to the Kidron Valley, back to the city of Jerusalem, all the way to the court of the high priest Caiaphas. While others run for cover, Peter boldly, courageously, still keeps following, albeit from a safe distance, or so Peter believes. All four gospel accounts record what happens next. Despite Peter's best efforts at blending in with the crowd, warming himself near a fire in the courtyard, and minding his own business, a servant girl, upon closer inspection, recognizes him as a designated associate of Jesus. Peter, for his part, plays dumb denying any knowledge of Christ. But people talk. Rumors die hard. And later, someone else again confronts Peter, asserting Peter's affiliation with Jesus. Feeling the heat, Peter doubles down in his denial. The truth, however, always bears out. After an hour has passed, someone identifies Peter as not being from around these parts marking him as a Galilean, the region where Christ conducted most of his ministry. This person connects the dots, yet again insisting there has to be a connection between Peter and Jesus. They say the third time's the charm, but Peter's determined to defy the odds. 
And so he ups the ante with a little attitude this time, some cursing and some swearing. Peter vehemently protests his ignorance. He claims he is being falsely identified. And as Peter, for the third time, denies to whom he belongs, denies who he follows, several things converge all at once. Even as the words are leaving Peter's lips, a rooster, hauntingly, prophetically, cries out in the morning twilight. In that very same moment, Jesus, though he is from some distance from Peter, manages to turn and look upon the one who has disowned him so convincingly. And Peter, in that moment, in that instant, with that sound, with that look, and with the memory of his now shattered promise in his mind, Peter becomes a broken man. Peter suddenly finds himself on the outside looking in with nothing left but his bitter tears. Peter's denial of Christ is perhaps one of the most well-known failures of all time. And like all great failures, what magnifies Peter's downfall is just how close he came to making it, to following Christ every step of the way. Even though it was ill-advised when no one else lifted a finger, Peter at least raised his sword to defend Jesus. And when Jesus was arrested and almost everyone else ran for cover, Peter went further than the rest in following Jesus at least this far. But when the moment of truth came, the time to put up or shut up, Peter who had earlier professed he'd go to the end of the line with Jesus, proved himself unable to honor his word, to back up all his bravado, his big talk. Peter folded. Peter folded, not in an instant, but in stages of denial. What happens to Peter is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not some momentary lapse. What happens to Peter is a mess of his own making. What Peter does here is a willful, purposeful choice, not simply to break relationship with Jesus, but to deny he's ever had any relationship with Christ. Peter is so earnest to distance himself from Jesus that when questioned, Peter can't even say his name. Did we catch that? Peter calls his friend. Peter calls his rabbi. Peter calls the one he once proclaimed to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter not once, but three times refers to Jesus as this man. Peter fails here so miserably, so completely, that some consider his denial of Jesus to be no less severe than Judas's betrayal. For in the end, isn't abandonment, the denial of another person in need, tantamount to betrayal? Betraying the bond, the trust of that relationship? We shake our heads before Peter's failure. We try to assess his motives, even as we harshly judge his actions. We do this despite what Jesus warned us about dealing with the log in our own eye. The wood by which we all craft the cross upon which 
Christ is crucified. Because Peter's not a special case. Peter's not the weak individual. Peter isn't the exception. He's the rule. He's every man. He's us. Well-intentioned, but ultimately falling short. Promising much, but in the end, failing to deliver. Proclaiming belief, but when push comes to shove, choosing not to follow. Like Peter, on our own, in our our own purported strength apart from Jesus, we also deny to whom we belong. We also deny the one we profess to be our Lord and Savior. We might not ever find ourselves pressed like Peter, renouncing Jesus publicly, but we've got to recognize there's more than one way to deny Christ. We may never explicitly say, I don't know that man. But every time we choose to live out of pride and fear rather than to walk by humble faith, every time we cultivate greed or envy instead of compassion and generosity, every time we stoke the fires of antagonism, slander, and violence, rather than seeking common ground, promoting peace, and striving for reconciliation, every time through stereotypes and prejudices we demonize those who do not look like us, who do not live like us, who do not exist exist in our social class who do not share our faith, our politics, our gender, our nationality. Every time we pass judgment rather than extend grace, condemn rather than forgive, with every careless and unloving thought, word, and action, we take on our own. We deny Christ. We deny that we know. We deny that we belong to. We deny that we follow Jesus. And yet, and yet in our darkest hour, there is still, there is still the grace of God. Something Peter doesn't realize yet, but we, can grab hold of now is Jesus knew. We're shocked by what Peter does, doesn't do, but Jesus isn't. Jesus knew what Peter was going to do. Jesus predicted Peter's total abject failure and loved him anyway. From the start, think about this, from the start, Jesus saw Peter Peter, do you remember his first encounter with Jesus? Peter, who by his own estimation called himself a sinful man. Jesus saw Peter, saw his flaws and failures, how Peter would deny him at his great hour of need, and yet Jesus still called him. Jesus came for, Jesus called, Jesus loves Jesus dies for not the idealized version of Peter, not for who Peter imagined himself to be, not for who Peter tried to convince himself and others that he was. Jesus came, Jesus called, 
Jesus loves. Jesus dies for who Peter is. A lost sheep, but not beyond rescuing. A prodigal son, but one who is always welcomed home. A beloved child of God who is forgiven, who will be set free, who will be empowered to live into the full, abundant, and eternal life for which he was created. And beloved, so Jesus comes. So Jesus calls. So Jesus loves. So Jesus carries the cross, bears all our guilt and shame, and tonight dies for us all. Even as we, even as we, like Judas, like Peter, like Pilate, end up making the choice to try to save our own skin at the cost of Jesus' life, Jesus still purposes to save us from ourselves by willingly offering himself for all the world, by writing our death sentence in his own blood. That's the beating heart of the gospel. The awestruck realization that the apostle Paul comes to in Romans chapter 5 when he writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No matter who we perceive ourselves to be in the journey of Jesus, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Denial, as the saying goes, is a popular, powerful thing. Denial is a powerful thing, but Christ dies tonight so that we can stop living in denial. For as the gospel proclaims and as we witness tonight, the love of God, the love God offers to us in Jesus proves to be stronger than all our rejections, all our betrayals, all our empty words and broken promises. This is love that will prove to be more powerful than death itself. Love that resurrects hope even when hope seems to be denied. The hope of a God who refuses to remain apart from us, who holds nothing back in choosing to forgive us, who even as we spit in his face and curse his name, looks upon us not with condemnation, but with forgiveness, who declares his everlasting and undying love for us even to his very last breath. I am threatened by Jesus his peaceful stance, his piercing gaze. There's something in him that is both attractive and terrifying. I am terrified. He's too dangerous. The sun rose over the courtyard of the high priest's house, revealing the man that had been forced to stand all night. Then the crowd formed and began to march. The temple guards, tasked with protecting God's house, had spent the night mocking and beating the prophet who claimed to be the Son of God. The chief priests and the teachers of the law had joined in. They wanted answers. Who was this Jesus to think that he could disrupt their way of life, their way of following God? They knew what God had asked of them. 
Moses had given them the Ten Commandments clear enough. In the generations since, faithful Jews had further articulated all the specifics for how to follow God's law, how to earn their place as His people. They knew that many of God's people hadn't been following God's law very well, and that was why they had been punished with the exile. That was why the Romans were still in power. That was why it was so important to properly follow God's decrees so he would send his Messiah to come rescue them from oppression. Some had thought that Jesus might have been the one that they were waiting for. He definitely could draw a crowd. He definitely had power, both in his teaching and in his miracles. But no, no, he could not have been God's Messiah. For one, he played fast and loose with the rules, healing on the Sabbath, inviting outsiders into the fold, forsaking the cleanliness codes. And instead of condemning sinners, he used his authority to critique the religious leaders. Didn't he know that they were the ones on the side of God? They spent their whole lives trying to live the right way. Nothing had gotten in the way of their piety. No sob story from a Samaritan. No sinful person cursed with a disease. Nothing was more important than following God's commands. They had established themselves as an authority on the subject. It was their duty to call people back to pious devotion to God. And anyone who didn't heed their call would find themselves out of the group when God sent his Messiah. At least they knew that they were on the inside. But Jesus kept denouncing them, speaking as if God's mercy extended even to those who were clearly sinners, critiquing the carefully constructed temple routines that kept undesirables out of the inner circle of God. How else are we supposed to know that we're living according to God's law if we mingle with those who don't follow the same rituals as we do? How else are we supposed to protect our way of life, our position of elect privilege as God's people? if we don't draw a hard boundary. No, Jesus was a threat. If too many people listened to him, they would say that the religious leaders had been wrong about what they taught. The people would turn away from them, and all that they had worked for would be lost. Even if they had chosen to work with Jesus and lift him up as God's Messiah, he would have been crushed by Rome and all of Israel along with him. That's too big of a threat, too dangerous. Better to just get rid of him before he jeopardized everything they had built. So the procession marched to the heart of the city. Pilate was seated and waiting for them when they arrived. The chief priest began spewing accusations before they had even finished assembling. Pilate was annoyed. Why all this shouting? He had been tipped off that this was the same Jesus who had ridden into town a few days ago with a procession of faithful devotees. And so Pilate had kept a close watch all week to see what this man and his followers would do. He had put down uprising and coups before. That's how he maintained his power. But this didn't seem like a group of loyal followers. Something had changed. The term king was definitely being thrown around, but the crowd didn't seem to be in favor of this Jesus. Pilate questioned Jesus, and he admitted to the titled king. Some king... Denied even by his own people. Others might be impressed with Jesus' humility. Pilate only saw weakness. There was no threat after all, just a nuisance. The only threat that was posed was Pilate's whole morning getting overrun by this tedium. 
so he sent the crowd on to Herod. Now Herod was waiting for Jesus too, but he was excited. He had heard the stories, and now he was here. Herod wanted to see a show. Maybe this Jesus would be valuable as some entertainment. There's nothing better than a grand spectacle. But while the religious leaders kept shouting their accusations, Jesus wouldn't so much as give a single word in answer to Herod's questions. How dare he? Didn't he know the power that Herod held? Jesus' stubborn silence threatened to undermine Herod's authority and undo the feeling of levity that he curated at all his parties. He had beheaded Jewish prophets for less. Herod made up his mind. Jesus would not threaten his comfort and amusement. He would not embarrass him in front of his guests. No, Jesus would become their entertainment one way or another. His guards began to heap insults on Jesus, while Herod sent one to fetch an elegant robe to dress the would-be king. That seemed to shut up the religious leaders, too, which brought a smile to Herod's face. Oh, what fun it was to make fun. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate with a thank you for the excellent morning entertainment. Pilate had given more thought to the situation and was ready with a solution. Punishment for the supposed rebel to appease the Jews. Keep the peace, even with violence if necessary. Then we can get back to the festival. But the crowd had grown. The joyful celebrations from a few days ago had spiraled into demands from an angry mob. Apparently, Jesus garnered more power than Pilate had thought. Three times, Pilate attempted to preside over the trial and offer a verdict along with punishment. But they rejected his verdict. They rejected his authority in the matter. This Jesus was a threat after all. His peaceful stance, his piercing gaze. There was a power in him that threatened Pilate's ability to keep control. The calm that Pilate had worked so hard to maintain was in threat of being thrown into chaos. The peace that he was trying to keep was about to be overwhelmed by murderous shouts. No, Pilate was the representative of Rome. He was the embodiment of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, enforced with pain if need be. This Jesus was too much of a threat. Better to eliminate him. I am threatened by Jesus, his welcoming stance, his outward gaze. There's a call to follow him that is both attractive and terrifying. I'm terrified. I think he's too dangerous. Jesus threatens my religious routines. I know how to come to church. I know how to read my Bible, how to pray. I know how to give and serve regularly. I sit back and I wait for the day for him to come again and to end all the suffering, to end my misery. But instead, he calls me to get up and follow him. Where? Out of this cozy, comfortable sanctuary? Out of my familiar Bible study group? To where? To my neighbors? How will I communicate the gospel to them? They might not have grown up with the same routines and traditions as me. There might be a language barrier. It might get awkward. They might reject me. 
I might not know as much as I think I do. No. Better to stick with what I know. Better to stick with who I know. I don't want to let go of the way I'm used to doing church. I don't want to let go of the ways that I'm used to serving God. Will I feel out of control? Will I begin to doubt like my friends? That sounds too dangerous. I am threatened by Jesus. He threatens my comfortable life. I've built a life that I enjoy. I know which hobbies bring me satisfaction. I know which people are fun to spend time with. I work hard to provide for my family and our future, but then Jesus calls me to pick up a cross? Why? I don't want to have to sacrifice what I've worked for. I don't even want to know which things Jesus is actually talking about asking me to sacrifice because I don't want to sacrifice anything. Why can't I follow Jesus in the way that I want to? Why can't I get encouragement and hope from him while still pursuing the life that I want? Because sometimes I, I, I don't want to tell anyone else about Jesus. Sometimes I don't want to extend grace. Sometimes I don't want to be generous with what I've worked so hard for. Can't Jesus just give me the things I need? Can he just provide for me and be my savior without asking me to sacrifice anything? No, better to just pull back from the call. Someone else can sacrifice and follow him like that. I'm going to stick with what I'm comfortable with. I'll stick with this way of life that I've created for myself. The way of the cross sounds too, too, too dangerous. I am threatened by Jesus. His confidence stance. His measured gaze. There's power in him that is both attractive and terrifying. I am terrified. He's too dangerous. If he is truly king, then I am not. If I truly submit to his power, then I have to give up my own. If he is truly the authority, then I can't be selective on when he has an effect on my life. No. Better to stick with myself as the one in charge of my life. I'm going to let Jesus have the authority in the areas that I decide. He does have some good things to say after all, but I get to decide when to listen to him and when not to. I get to decide what things to protect, what things to pursue. If I let Jesus be the king of my life, that might threaten some of the things I've built. That might threaten some of the things that I'm comfortable with. That might threaten the control that I'm holding on to. No. Jesus is too much of a threat. They all seem to be in on it. The crowds, the religious leaders, the soldiers, even one of the criminals all join in in the mocking of Jesus. And they all mock him in a similar way. Isn't this the Messiah? Aren't you the chosen one, the promised one? Aren't you the one who is going to save Israel? Aren't you the one who is going to usurp Rome and rescue the people? Even though they all sneer and mock and reject Jesus in a similar way, they all expect something a little bit different from Jesus. The religious leaders 
demand Jesus prove himself, prove his identity, prove who he said he is, who the people said he is. The soldiers demand a a sign of power, proving himself to be the king. The criminal is in it for himself. Do something. Do something for me. And yet in all these things, the way that Jesus can prove himself was by saving himself. They all demand something from Jesus, all the while missing the one thing that Jesus is doing for them, and that's dying. But before we point the finger too quickly, let's examine our own selves, our own hearts. See, sometimes we too place an expectation upon Jesus. We too place demands on him. We want God to prove his existence, to show himself. If God is real, why doesn't he make himself known? Sometimes we want God to do something powerful. If God is real, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Can't he do something about that? And sometimes, most of the time, we want God to do something for us. If God is real, why is he allowing this pain in my life? Why is he allowing this suffering? Why is he allowing cancer to win? Whatever it might be, we put our demands on God. And yet there he is on the cross. God incarnate, revealed to us in flesh and blood. He has shown himself in the person of Jesus. There he is on the cross fighting evil, the evils of sin, death, and the devil. There he is on the cross bringing us the only true healing that we really need. It's not in coming down from the cross that Jesus proves himself. It's in staying on the cross. See, Jesus knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows his purpose. He knows his mission. And it's not to save himself. None of this is about him. Even as he falls under the crushing weight of the cross... And Simon is forced to carry it. And the women follow and they weep and they mourn for him. Jesus turns back to them and he says, don't cry for me. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for yourselves because if this is how they are treating me, the worst is still yet to come. You see, the mocking reveals just how much these people don't understand Jesus. And yet, ironically... One man seems to get it. And that's the other criminal hanging next to him. This man understands that the wages of sin is death. That his death, that our death is just. And Jesus has done nothing wrong. His death is not just. He doesn't deserve it. And yet he does it anyway. And he does it willingly. He does it to save us. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. 
That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and exchanges it for his righteousness. And it's why we call this day good. Because on this day, Jesus' atoning death is truly our only hope. For we are like that rebel on the cross. Our destiny is death. And yet, when we face that day, we have the promise of hope. We have the promise that we too will be with Jesus in paradise. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Thank you.